Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer and columnist for the Conservative Institute, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. This week, you may have seen my debut at The Dispatch. That is Jonah Goldberg and Steve Hayes' new venture. They published my piece called Autopsy of an Impeachment, which covers sort of the political underpinnings of the entire impeachment process and why it happened the way that it did. And I sort of strip out all of the day-to-day politics and the news stories that happened with it and look at sort of the political fundamentals that were at play, such as the primary calendar and other issues that truly impacted the impeachment more than all the stories that you read on a day-to-day basis. They gave me lots of support for it. Uh, Steve Hayes and Jolden Goldberg both emailed me and said that they loved it, and it was a terrific article. They both tweeted about it. And so you you should go check that out. You can go support them as well. You can go to the Dispatch and sign up for their newsletter offerings. I'm a subscriber of them, and I love what they do. And I've sent in another piece to them, so hopefully you'll see me there again either this week or in the near future. So make sure to check that out. I had two columns out this week at the Conservative Institute. The first one covered just sort of some thoughts on the idea of community and how that impacts our day-to-day lives, especially this week I was looking at the Nashville tornado, being affected by it by myself, and I wanted to sort of look at how community impacted that and just sort of watching a community pull together to rebuild in the aftermath of a very bad natural disaster. And then my second column with the Conservative Institute covered why the national media is just so awful covering this coronavirus and why local news is the way to go on that front. And then the newsletter this week, had a lot this week, I had a wrap-up of Super Tuesday and talked about what happened to Bernie Sanders and what to make of everything moving forward. So if any of that interests you now or later after after this show, you can go sign up for all of that and get it all in your email inbox. This past week, the newsletter got sent out and had a link to the dispatch piece. So you can go to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and sign up there. It's free, it's easy, and it's the, just the fastest way to get my columns and analysis to you. So it's not gonna, you're not going to get any spam from that. It's just what I write and my weekly thoughts in the newsletter. And then finally, if you like what you hear here or enjoy my written work, make sure to subscribe and review this podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Those five-star reviews help listeners and readers like you find me in the iTunes algorithm, and I appreciate those reviews that you're sending in. All right, so we're going to jump into this week's show, and the easiest way to describe what's going to happen this week is that it's all about the coronavirus and or COVID-19 as the technical term that they're all using now. I believe that's the Associated Press's official term, so if you've noticed a switchover from the coronavirus to COVID-19, it's because the Associated Press's style book that they send out on how to cover certain events recommends using the name COVID-19 over coronavirus, and COVID-19 is the official name for it. So, But the reason we're going to talk about that is just frankly because right now this virus impacts every last single news story that's that, that's out there. It impacts the economy. It's impacting. It will start impacting the, the, the primary, and it could possibly impact the general election. So it, it, there's a lot of different factors moving along here. 
So I'm just going to make that the overarching theme and cover a lot of different topics on it. The first one is that I'm just going to talk about the main story, the spread of the virus, and just sort of the main storylines there. And then in the second segment, we will talk about the economy, the the way this it could impact voting and primaries, and more related to that. So I'm going to start out sort of a 30,000-foot view and then go down to some of the more specific topics that it is impacting right now. For instance, right now, one of the things that happened as I was going coming in to record here real late tonight on Sunday evening is that CNBC alert has reported that Japan's stock market has dropped 6%, Hong Kong has dropped 4%, and that's amid an oil pricing war that's also happening right now. So you have these two impacts that are happening. You have the coronavirus, which is causing uncertainty and chaos in the stock market and also just in the economy overall. And then there's a second stressor that's beginning to show up, and that is this oil war that is beginning to break out where the price of oil is dropping and no one can come to a deal to control that price among all the different countries. So that is leading to dual shocks in the economy that could affect things moving forward. So that's just one thing. So it's looking like it's just between both the virus and oil, it's going to be a pretty brutal day on Monday in the stock market, and that could lead to a pretty brutal week overall, depending on what happens. But that's just one shock. So we're going to jump here to the coronavirus and its specific impacts and how it's spreading right now. So worldwide, right now, you're looking at the world crossing the 100,000 mark for cases of people having the coronavirus. And the bulk of those are still coming from China. You've got about eight, a little over 80,000 of those are coming from mainland China, specifically the provinces you would expect like Wuhan and others. So the bulk of it's still there, but you're seeing impacts elsewhere now, especially in places like South Korea, Italy, which is increasing the size and scope of its quarantines. One of the big, just sort of interesting impacts that that's having is that sports teams over there are going to be playing their games in front of empty stadiums. Italy is banning large-scale groups from gathering in order to prevent the spread of COVID-19 going any further. And that makes sense just from a controlling the spread of this one of the key points that you want that are non-pharmaceutical that CDC would point to would be social distancing. It's where you eliminate large gatherings of people in order to slow the spread of the virus. And you may not be able to stop it from spreading and hitting the population overall. But the reason that you don't want it hitting these large groups is that it could cause stresses on your health care by creating these large influxes of people into hospitals. So part of pandemic planning on that front is to introduce these sort of quarantines or to input large social distancing policies that prevents these large groups from happening. And that prevents the virus from being able to jump to large groups of people and spread even faster. So that's why they're doing that over there. Over in the United States, though, we're finally seeing our first batches of tests going out, large scale, that is. The FDA announced yesterday, I believe it was, that they're going to be shipping out 1.1 million tests out across the country, just across the board to everywhere. They have 75,000 tests out right now, with so that's going to beef that up quite a bit. And then they have 
One manufacturer saying they have 460,000 tests that are sitting in a QA process that are supposed to ship out at any moment, and then another 600,000 that are supposed to they're doing the same thing except they're about a day or so out from being able to move out from quality control and get out there. So within short order, we're talking about close to 2 million, a little over 2 million tests are going to be out in the public and be able to hit all these large population centers. So in the next week, you're really going to know what is the full scope of where this virus is, how far it's spread, and how fast it's spreading in the populace. And even after that, the FDA said they had other manufacturers saying that they could up production and by the end of next week, they thought they could have another 3 to 4 million testing units out in the market. So we're going to learn within the next 7, 10, you know, two weeks here, we're really going to learn exactly how far this virus has spread. And I suspect it's spread pretty far. Right now, the United States has a little over 400 cases but we don't know just how much we actually have because we haven't done enough testing. And the primary reason for that is we haven't had the tests. There's a lot of conspiracy theories in corners of the Internet that said this has been on purpose, that the reason we haven't been testing this is because we don't want to reveal how many how many of these cases that we have, and I, I just don't buy that. The reason is that we don't haven't just flat out haven't had the tests. We had to design the testing units and then send them through a QA process. This all takes time. And then once we figure out how we can do that, and then it's a matter of doing that at scale. So now we're beginning to hit the part where we can do this at scale, we can do it quickly, and we can cover all of the United States in these tests, and that is very important. But while that is important, that also means we know that we've been undercounting how many of these infections that we've had across the United States, and so the numbers are going to go up. It wouldn't shock me if we are well on our way to about 2,000 people who are going to be infected by the end of this next week, maybe more. That just wouldn't shock me because we're only at 400 now. And when you look at just at the size of our country, the amount of traveling that happens, and just we we can't do the level of city quarantine that places like China are doing because they're just so far more authoritarian and people can come and go a lot easier within the United States than they can in other places. China has all these authoritarian measures where they can just send the army in and set people down. We aren't going to do that. If you go back and look at what the CDC said during the 2009-2010 flu pandemic that happened, the H1N1 swine flu, the CDC basically said that they knew that they couldn't, there was no way for them to control people to prevent the spread of that flu throughout the United States. It was only about mitigating it where it happened. And so you encouraged people to do the basics, wash their hands, engage in social distancing, that sort of thing. But as far as preventing the spread of it through quarantine and other measures, that was largely impossible in the United States. And over that year, when we had H1N1 running around the United States, we ended up having 60.8 million cases during that time. So that is a lot. And there are over 10,000 deaths that happened from that too. But with COVID-19, we're not really sure what its impact will be. It's technically a form of SARS. And that happened, That the last version we saw of that was from 2002 to 2004 in China. Basically SARS-1. This is 
for all intents and purposes, this is a version of SARS-2. And the first version we saw back then wasn't that bad. And I say that, I mean, it had 774 deaths. It had nearly a 10% death rate. But there were only about 8,000 cases. We're already above 100,000 now. So this is well, this is far more infectious and spreads far easier than SARS ever did. So we don't know if this is going to be closer to the flu when it comes to a death rate or if it's going to be something above that. Right now, the numbers suggest that this would be a really bad flu season where you could see the death rate hit something closer to 1% instead of 0.1% that you see with a typical seasonal flu. So we just don't know. And part of the reason that some of these numbers could be getting skewed is that we're looking at places like China and Iran, where we know more deaths are taking place just because they have an awful healthcare system. And it should be noted that China and Iran both have socialized healthcare systems. The government gives out care to the people, and yet they're still struggling to keep this contained. And the United States, where you have a market based system, we're about to find out how bad it is here, but you're probably also about to see us deal with it a lot better than the socialized countries. It's still impacting all countries equally. Socialized, and I've seen people like Bernie Sanders and other, some of his supporters suggest that this is a pitch for socialized medicine, and it's really not. So far, the socialized medicine systems have done far worse. So we need to see how many cases we have and find out how to best treat them, and that'll tell us exactly what's happening over here. Like I said, the death count doesn't look like it's going to be as bad as SARS, but we also have more cases. So this is, all of this is still in flux. Everything you're seeing right now where people are saying, well, we think it'll do this, we think it'll do that, all of that is best estimate based on what we know from the past. We don't have strong numbers to be able to make those projections for the United States. So when you're when I get into you know, a little later in the show, when we talk about the, the economy and voting and just how it can impact everything overall, these are still projections because we don't know how far this will spread. We don't know how, how impactful our measures of getting people to wash their hands. And, and we'll see if we start committing to more things like social distancing. distancing. We saw this week a really big conference, South by Southwest in Texas, canceled, and that had that typically has over 400,000 people there. I think last year it was 417,000. They're expecting a roughly similar group there this year. I've seen some Comic-Cons cancel. There have been some smaller events that have also canceled. And so these large-scale conferences, you're seeing people either pull out or cancel because you get one person there who's infected, you could have many other people infected, and then they, they return all over the United States. That happened at the Conservative Political Action Committee, CPAC, in Washington, D.C. They announced over the weekend that they had a person there who had the virus, and apparently that person had contact with the vice president and also Senator Ted Cruz. Neither of them is reporting the fact that they have any symptoms. Cruz said he was going to stay in Texas for the remainder of the time until uh, until his two weeks up. He hasn't shown any symptoms, but he said a few more days to be able to determine whether or not it would kick in. So he is self-quarantining himself there, which is smart. He pointed people, he reached the statement where he pointed people to all kinds of resources that they need to investigate. So you're seeing this pop up and it's going to impact somewhere in the United States. 
we know it's coming. It's just a matter of where, when, and how. So we don't know if it's going to be less severe than a seasonal flu. We don't know if it's going to be more severe. But we are really going to find out in the next, especially the 7 to 10 days, those are going to be critical as these tests start hitting the market. And as we start flooding the market at the end of next week, and we're really going to know at the end of two weeks how far this is spread. And then you're probably going to see more impacts as far as things like school and other things. We'll start seeing those impacts a little later on. And if you're a public school system in the United States right now, you're really trying just to get to the end of the school year before having to take any any drastic actions, because it would not be shocking to me if this spreads quickly and there's more than we think out there for you to see U.S. school systems shut down. Here in Tennessee, Williamson County Schools shut down for two days, Friday and this upcoming Monday, because one case was reported and they were going to disinfect the entire school system. That's smart, but you could still see the virus spread throughout the county, even with those types of precautions being taken. So the easiest thing to do would be to cancel school. That's going to be rough on parents because they're not going to be able to work most likely. So there's just all these different impacts that are going to trickle through the economy that you have to watch. We're still looking at a vaccine that's probably going to be 12 to 18 months away. So the impacts of this are going to be felt for quite some time until we're able to get a just a straight up solution to it that vaccinates everybody against it, sort of like how we did with H1N1. We have to figure out how to defeat that, and that is going to take at least a year. Even if you were able to fast track something and get a solution here and test it over the next six months, you're still not going to be able to get that thing to scale probably for the next year just due to all of the quality assurance checks and regulations that we have for a new vaccine to hit the market. That's one thing I would say to watch for Trump to do. If we get a surefire thing that we think is going to work, he will probably end up fast-tracking that, which would be a good idea. So look for that in the coming three to six months. If we see a solution, we're probably going to fast-track that thing through. The second thing on this, on the spread, I wanted to touch here, is that Bernie Sanders tweeted out that any vaccine that is released should be free. Now, this is, I mean, I think it might be easier just with Bernie Sanders to find something he doesn't believe should be free. And with a vaccine, it might make sense where you should say, well, the government should just say any vaccine these guys produce should be free. There's no reason to do that at all. Our system already abundantly covers for these types of deals. In 1962, Congress passed and the President Kennedy signed through the Vaccine Assistance Act. And the point of that was to provide funds to states and local organizations to get them to fund vaccination efforts, either through buying vaccines outright or pushing through educational programs to get people to go to their doctors and get their health care insurance to give them these vaccines. So we already have this over 50-year-old act that covers this very situation. In fact, in 2010, Barack Obama dropped $300 million into this program, and that was at the height of the H1N1 pandemic, and it was just to get vaccines of all types into the, pan, into the hands of poor people so that they were covered and didn't get sick from these diseases. And specifically, that funding under the Vaccine Assistance Act comes under what's called Section 317. And when you combine that with the Affordable Care Act, which covers all kinds of vaccines itself, you have 
pretty universal coverage through vaccines through the United States where everybody can get the basic vaccinations that they need in order to prevent the, the spread of these diseases that we don't want to see in society at all. And the other thing here, apart from those, there is the spending package that Congress passed to directly target this problem of the coronavirus. And part of that legislation that was sent to Donald Trump mandates Health and Human Services to purchase some vaccines in the event that a vaccine is created. It was something, I think, around $300 million. I'd have to go back and check. But it was quite a sizable chunk of money of the $8 billion. And obviously, if Congress wants to, they can allocate even more to that effort. So between those three laws and the statutes and the money that they bring in, Congress has largely covered all those situations. And then after that, if all of those things fail, what we've seen in both in the past and in the current age is that the free market will end up covering the rest. And that means... Two things. You'll either see philanthropists step forward, where you've seen something like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation step forward and, and help vaccinate people in third world countries or even over here in order to reduce health care costs overall. And so you see those groups step in, or you will see health insurance companies step in and cover the costs for this vaccine. Because you have to ask yourself, what do they want to pay for? Is it easier to pay for a vaccine, no matter what the cost of that is, or do you want to pay for the cost of people who get sick and have to be hospitalized and cared for in the event they catch this virus? The cheaper option is to pay for the vaccine. These companies are motivated by profit in order to pay for these vaccines. You see a lot of these preventative health insurance plans, a lot of them already covered vaccines prior to Obamacare going through. And right now, if you have a certain high deductible plan, vaccinations are covered under that. So you can get them equivalently for free under your current health plan. Your, if you have one from your employer or, some, or any Obamacare plan that you get in the exchange, is going to cover this sort of thing. These companies are profit-motivated to cover vaccine because they don't want to pay for hospital or doctor or medication costs for these diseases. A vaccination is always cheaper than the healthcare costs associated with getting the disease. So between, so just recap this here. We have the Vaccine Assistance Act under Section 317. You have the Affordable Care Act. You have Health and Human Services with roughly $8 billion that are going to be directed to various efforts to defeating this disease. You have philanthropists, and then you have the free market all targeting ways to solve this. So when you combine all of those together, we have the solution already. So Bernie Sanders is just saying something that sounds good, but in reality, it's already covered. And, you know, Bernie Sanders would maybe know this if he had any major accomplishments in Congress to speak of. But he doesn't, because he's Bernie Sanders. He's a socialist. He wants his big programs, and if he doesn't get those, he votes against everything else. There's a really funny clip of Hillary Clinton and her latest Tulu interview documentary thing, and she just lays into Sanders saying that nobody likes him and he's never done anything in his life. And I laughed because on the one hand, it's Hillary Clinton, so, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I know why you're attacking him. But on the other hand, everything she said was true. Literally everything she said about Sanders was true, so you got to give her that. So we're going to take a break, 
And when we come back, we'll talk through the economic impacts of this and how it could impact voting in the primaries, as well as other issues. All right, as I said, we're going to talk in this segment about the coronavirus economic impact, its voting impact, and more. So as I mentioned earlier, that we have 1.1 million tests going out with more on the way. And you already have people freaking out when we only have about 400 confirmed cases in the United States. You have scenes like people stockpiling toilet paper. Now that sort of thing, that's just going to get worse in the coming weeks and days as more cases get recorded and people start thinking that it's spread further, even though it's probably already spread pretty far and we just don't know about it yet. People are always more scared about what they know than what they don't know in this situation. So they're going to hear the higher number and believe that and think it's even worse than it actually is. So that means you're going to see far more freakouts and far more people stockpiling toilet paper, even though I don't know why that's happening at all. That doesn't make any sense. People should be buying soap, things like that. But this means that the recession risks that I've mentioned both in prior newsletters and in prior episodes All those risks are back on the table. And the reason all these recession risks are on the table is for a few reasons. The first is pretty simple, because the virus simply impacts. It's just everywhere. It's still being felt in these places where they think they've got it controlled. It still hasn't filtered into some of our economic data. You may have noticed that we had a really good jobs number come out for this past month. That really didn't factor in any of the virus shocks that we've seen so far. So people are waiting to see economic data that indicates that the shocks are being felt in the system. The second reason is that China and Japan are both teetering towards a recession. Japan is probably already in a recession right now because their growth was so low. China was already signaling pretty clearly that they were heading that way. So we're still waiting for new data to come out. You have Germany that's seen a slowdown. Italy is going to see a slowdown in the Eurozone because they're having to quarantine so much. And then in the United States, we've seen a lot of our growth forecasts cut, either by half a percentage points or a full point. And when you're projected around 2% growth for the year, and you're seeing almost a full point come off the board, that means you're really seeing economic growth slow down to a crawl. So with all of that... The U.S. impacts this just have not been felt yet in data. Anecdotally, you're probably seeing some of this happen with people either being laid off in things like aerospace. You know, you've got flight attendants and and different pilots. There's been some hiring freezes with some of the airlines where they have a pilot shortage. But because people have cut back so much on their travel via airlines, they don't need to hire as many pilots right now because people are not flying on these planes. So you have that happening. You have tourist industry and the conference industry. Any any type of business that deals with that is not going to be using that anymore. And then if you have people who travel or you have people not getting being around strangers, things like Uber and all of the 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 ride sharing stuff that's going to get impacted. So all these various industries that you see here, even you know Airbnb, Airbnb, people are traveling. They're not going to need temporary housing. 
all these different things get impacted by the virus. It's a trickle-down effect. And if you have people who aren't able to spend money that they're earning because they're either let off or because their business has this freeze in what they're capable of making, you're going to see consumer spending across the economy come down. So there's all these trickle-down effects that are happening. On top of this, what's just happened, and what's kind of percolated behind the scenes that hasn't been talked about a lot, is that there is an oil war, oil war going on. Oil values, as I was going to record here, had dropped 20% from where they closed on Friday. That means they lost a fifth of their value overnight right now. And they're losing that because both the Middle East and a lot of these different oil-based countries cannot come to an agreement on what the price of oil should be, how many barrels should be produced, and so on and so on. And so there's a massive amount of supply out there right now. You may have noticed that gas prices are cheaper right now, and that's part of it. But oil is in everything. And at one point, the price of oil had dropped 31.6%, which was the biggest drop we've seen since the 1991 Gulf War. That rebounded, so these are all futures right now. So you're going to see a drop tomorrow, but this is another shock to the economic system. So you have this shock plus the virus, and this is all going to make for a bad stock market tomorrow. It could make for a bad week overall. So it's just something to watch here. And, you know, I mentioned that Japan and China are teetering towards recession. Japan is now offering interest-free loans to small companies in order to keep them afloat. Because what's happening is a lot of these small businesses, because they can't get supply from places like China, that means they can't make sales to their customers. And so if they're not making sales, they're not bringing in revenue, which means they're going to come up short on basic things like revenue and paying for their debt. So now that China's offering interest-free loans, it's basically they're saying, listen, we're going to keep you guys afloat for as long as we can here because we can't have you going under. If you go under, we're definitely in a recession. So that's where Japan is right now, and we're not even seeing the full effects of the virus and the oil across the full economy. So this could get a lot worse for some of these countries that were already doing poorly, and it could get it worse in the United States. We're already seeing supply lines in China get impacted because everybody sources and manufactures in China because it's so cheap. Well, now a lot of those factories are shut down, so now your supply and your products are you're not able to get them. So everything from manufacturing, tourism, flight, and these are all heavily impacted. And it, it eventually trickles down to just about every part of the economy. If businesses don't make money. They can't pay their employees. If consumers are staying home, that means they're not shopping, so you don't have all this slosh of money moving around in the economy. So it's this really bad, self-stimulating economic circle of just bad things where you want people spending because we're a consumer-based economy, but they're not doing it as much. And in fact, some of the consumer sentiment polling that we've seen shows it dropping as people are looking and planning for the future. They are not as confident in the economy moving forward. So that's the overall impact on the economy. If that goes downhill, one of the most important factors when you're looking at an election is second quarter growth. And right now, the second quarter is going to get hit pretty hard. So that's after the first three months here. So you're talking about spring into summer. 
that's where the bulk of all this impact and all the data that's going to come out from this virus is going to be felt. So it could get really bad in that, which would cause people to think, probably think twice about Donald Trump as they're heading into a voting booth in the election year, because his main argument is that the economy is working well, and elections are almost always a referendum on the governing party. So if the economy is going bad or poorly, they're going to blame him more than likely. So he's got to figure out a way to get that turned around. And he's already done that by pushing the Fed to lower interest rates. That'll probably be cut again. It wouldn't shock me to see some sort of stimulus plan, him start batting that idea around with Congress in the near future in order to avoid a full-blown recession, which means you're going to see our debt go up even more than it already is right now, because we're spending with wild abandon. And that brings me to the election, because we are currently in a primary season, as you all know, we've been talking about it here, and so all these primary states are still on the table. We still have a majority of the states in the Democratic Party that have not voted in the primaries. So that means you're you've got we've got some coming up this Tuesday, and turnout so far has improved, or it's been up in a lot of these primary states. But what are people going to do if they're afraid of COVID nineteen, the coronavirus? What are they going to do, and how does that impact their voting behavior? We really, really don't know. This is a great unknown here, and I'm wondering how it will impact, because if you have the CDC and the government saying, do not go out in crowded groups, well, that's nothing but what a voting line is. It's a big crowded group where you're standing in line with other people who may be sick, and you could catch some of their germs. And I noticed this week, this past week, that the CDC put out information for states and localities on dealing with the coronavirus and voting situations. And so a lot of this involved, you know, cleaning your voting booth, cleaning the screens, keeping things like sanitizer and other things available, wiping things down. But, you know, if people and different groups of people are fearful, are they going to be willing to go in and vote? Or are they just going to throw it all out and say, well, I can vote another time. I can vote in the general election. I'm not going to risk it by going to a primary election, especially if they think someone like Joe Biden is already going to win. Why would they bother go? So if Biden's voters think, well, he's going to win by a landslide now, he's got this thing covered because that's how the media is going to cover it. Does that mean that his voters aren't going to show up because they don't want to get the virus? That could boost Bernie Sanders chances because so far, Higher turnout has benefited Joe Biden. Lower turnout in caucus situations benefits Bernie Sanders because he has his core group who will go out and vote for him no matter what. But if people are staying home, that can make things more likely that Bernie Sanders could stage a comeback here. So how this virus impacts people's behavior, it's not really so much the campaigns, although I'll get into that in a second, or the voting booth, because people will be able to vote. That's going to happen. What we need to see is how it impacts their behavior as far as whether or not they actually want to go out and vote, how it impacts group dynamics. It's a big ask to ask somebody to come out and vote for you in an election while there is a potential pandemic happening in the country with a disease. That's a big ask. 
I don't know if people are going to do it. But the more we go into this primary season, the more that could be an, an issue going forward. So we're going to go to my last thoughts here. And so, you know, we know uh, that COVID-19 hurts the elderly and the sick more than most. And that's sort of concerning when you consider that we have three people all in their 70s running for president of the United States right now. You have Joe Biden, you have Bernie Sanders, and Donald Trump. And of the three, Donald Trump is the youngest of all three. And they're all old, and they're all running, and they're all going into all these rallies, they're meeting all these people, they're shaking all these hands, kissing babies, so on and so on. And they're doing it all across the United States. And they're doing it across, especially, you know, all these primary states. And then they'll hit all these battleground states. And we know the virus is in all these different places. And so it is concerning to see these people who are in a risk category for this type of virus to keep going out. And that the other thing here is you, you have to wonder now if this virus impacts that. Does a candidate say to someone like Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders or, or Donald Trump, do they say, I'm not going to interact as much? I'm not as worried about Donald Trump on this front just because he is a well-known germaphobe. So he if if he if he's worried about this, he's probably going to be even more of a germaphobe than normal. So that actually might protect him in this case. I know less about Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. Biden in particular is more of a glad hander and a toucher, as you know. He has on more than one occasion it looks like he's sniffing women's hair. If you're trying to avoid a virus, you don't want to do that. So how is that going to impact their behavior, or even does it? And if it doesn't impact their behavior, could we have a situation here in the next few months where one of these guys contracts the disease? We know in places like Iran where it's run through almost 10% of their entire their parliament, and that's I don't expect that to happen here just because we have a better healthcare system and Iran is a mess. But it's not impossible for this to impact either the House, Congress, or any of these races that are going around. Because aside from the presidential race, you also have all these senators and representatives who have to eventually go back to their districts and start running for their office again. So you're asking a lot. And Democrats in particular have a much older set of leadership and representatives. They got wiped out in 2010 and 2014 when Republicans won in those midterms. And they really haven't recovered yet. 2018 was the first time where they really saw new blood come back into the fray. But that means that all their leadership is really old. So if you're asking them to go back and campaign again, that puts them at risk too. So we have these risk factors here that are coming up with the election. And I don't know if the campaigns or these or these politicians are thinking about it. I'm sure some of them are. But it is going to impact them. It wouldn't shock me to see somebody get... Uh, the coronavirus from one of their campaign events. We had in the CPAC, you know, Ted Cruz is saying that he was in contact with one. I know that same person was allegedly in contact with Mike Pence. So we've already got a vice president and a senator who have potential impacts here. I know this is going to happen with the Democrats too, because they have their own conferences, their own rallies, and so on and so on. This is a big deal that's looming and a big uncertainty. This is a big question mark where I would say we know it's going to impact 
the elections, and if not the presidential race, it's going to impact one of these local races. We just don't know where. And how does that impact things? How do people look at it? How how does that impact everything moving forward? And there are big questions looming now about how this interacts with both primaries and the election. And there's just a lot of uncertainty. And there's going to be big developments, like I said, over the next 7 to 10 days about how far this is spread in the United States. And we need to know that. But there's no way right now to clean up any of this uncertainty because, one, we don't know how, we don't know how bad the bottom bad the problem is. We don't know how the size and scope of it yet. And we don't know of the people who are walking around right now who have it and they don't know it. We don't know who else they're interacting with and spreading it to. All big unknowns impacting every part of the political world, the economic world, and just everything in general. So for now, keep washing your hands, cover your coughs, practice social distancing, You might want to start looking at those big events that you're thinking about going to and ask, do you need to attend them? Because right now, until we know the full scope of it, it's probably a better idea to play it safe. And you're not being crazy thinking that because I know a lot of conferences. I know you're probably going to see sporting events who are going to do this. In fact, the big one coming up is March Madness. And I'm wondering if they're going to empty out some of these stadiums and just let it happen on television, not let anybody else in. That's happened in the past. You're probably going to see some school districts closed too. So there's just a lot of interplay happening here and a lot of things. So wash your hands, cover your coughs, do all the things that the CDC says, and stay safe. That's all I've got for today's show, though. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information of the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews and help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode. 